Hey everyone, and welcome to a particularly special episode of the Scientist Podcast. This week, we are lucky enough to be joined by Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Michael Kostelitz. A physicist at Brown University, Dr. Kostelitz has spent much of his career researching condensed matter physics. Fascinatingly, he is also something of a pioneer in alpine climbing, and there is a route that bears his name in the Orco Valley of the Italian Alps. Dr. Kostelitz, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. For those not intimately familiar with it, can you characterize the study of condensed matter physics in terms of what it examines and what the core problems are? Okay, condensed matter physics is a very wide field. It studies anything other than high energy physics or cosmology, things like that. All sorts of fields from atomic clocks to everyday engineering problems, like, for example, directional solidification, trying to purify a solid. It's a very interesting statistical mechanical problem. I imagine one of the quirks of being an academic with some particularly complicated work is you have the dinner table type question of what exactly is it that you do? Have you found a particularly good way of communicating the nuance of phase transitions? Or do you kind of say, well, I'm a physicist? <laughs> I haven't found a good way of doing it. You know, when I try to say phase transition, one might think of studying as everyday phase transition like boiling water. Thermodynamics was originally invented to understand steam engines. It was invented in order to make the steam engine more efficient. You know, it's very important at the time because the steam engine was the main source of power for industry and transportation and so on, turned into this complicated field of thermodynamics, which I consider to be one of the most difficult, confusing fields in trying to teach physics. Have you found that your relationship with teaching physics has changed over the years? I imagine on one level, you know, when you're doing some personal work, some personal research that's particularly fascinating, I wonder if it's possible to get as excited about the teaching then as when the research is less vibrant. Yes and no, because teaching this sort of material per se is not so interesting as thinking about problems that are not really understood yet. But trying to communicate with students and get them interested in the subject and so on, that's an interesting challenge. Yeah, and it's one that's kind of very different to the challenge of the physics itself. You can't derive out a connection with a student who's not understanding a problem, whereas you can be very hands-on clearly with the mathematics. It's similar because you must remember yourself that, you know, you sit in class and you're falling asleep (laughs) because the teacher is not very interesting. On the other hand, other classes teaching equally boring material can be quite exciting because the teacher is engaging. Motivating younger people to get interested in something is also a major challenge. And it makes such a difference. It's actually such an interesting point. The difference a teacher, especially at university, because there it's a bigger room, it's slightly more anonymous, it's a bigger lecture hall. The teachers don't necessarily know your name because there's too many of you. To have a a lecturer there be really engaging is such a game changer. And I think everyone remembers that. That's a skill that few people have. Talking to this huge audience, none of whom you know, and trying to be engaging. Is that something that develops over your teaching career or is it you're sort of born with it? I don't know. I I think you're born with it. (laughs) (laughs) I certainly don't have that talent. I find trying to make what I'm talking about interesting or engaging is very difficult. It's especially interesting, I imagine, with physics, because physics is very mathematical, especially in some of its variations. 
And I wonder if there are challenges particular to trying to communicate maths and especially the technical details of maths to a room full of students who you don't know. I think that you have to stress the fact that it's the physics that's the most important because a lot of mathematics was developed in order to understand physical problems. The important thing is the physics. The mathematics is merely a descriptive tool one uses to try to describe the the physics. Okay, if you take a piece of mathematics, that piece of mathematics in principle contains all possible questions and all possible answers within that framework. Sometimes the framework and the physics don't correspond to each other. The maths is a means to an end, therefore. Yeah, it's just a tool. That's why physics is so much fun, because you don't know really whether you're using the right tools to approach the problem. Yeah, and the universe kind of holds the cards here. It doesn't matter how elegant our theory is. If, upon experimentation, it doesn't stand up and doesn't explain the physical processes. Then it's back to the drawing board. You have to, you know, throw out everything you thought and start from scratch. That's a great thing about physics. That makes it so interesting. And especially, I imagine, if you're doing the cutting-edge research, there's not really a map to follow in as far as, I mean, you're the one creating the map future similar type of problems are going to be referencing this work as opposed right. to the other way around. Speaking of cutting-edge research, you won the Nobel Prize in 2016 for your work on, and I'm about to butcher the pronunciation here, please forgive me, the Berezinsky, Kostelitz, and Thaus transition. Yeah. Now, when you were doing that work, did you have any sense that this was groundbreaking or going to lead to a Nobel Prize? Did you have that sense at the time? Good Lord, no. Because... <laughs> This was, uh, I mean, I was a postdoc. I was a high-energy physicist. I was really fed up with these long, tedious calculations in high-energy physics that went nowhere. I'd spent a year or two at Birmingham University as a postdoc, you know, doing these long, tedious calculations for no return. And eventually, I got to the point where I, I thought to myself, I can't take this anymore. I've got to find something else to do. So I wandered around the department asking everybody I came across, do you by any chance have uh, an interesting problem that I might look at? And the general answer was, sorry, no. Until I ended up in David Thowler's office, standing there listening to him going on and on about something. I thought, my God, I don't understand what he's talking about. Got to stop this because (laughs) it's getting more and more embarrassing and I really don't understand a word he's talking about. So eventually I plucked up my courage and said, uh, excuse me, David, I'm sorry, I'm completely lost. Could you please explain where the first equation you wrote on the board, where did that come from? And he turned around and looked at me and said, didn't I tell you that? And then proceeded to give a very clear explanation. And from that point on, he and I got on pretty well together. Eventually it's developed into the work and the Nobel Prize. But when I started doing the, the work, it was, it was just an interesting theoretical problem. Nothing more than that, but some small thing, which was really of very little interest to anybody except some theorists. You know, we were trying to understand the conflict between observation and existing theory. I mean, observation said basically thin films of superfluid helium. You see, and theory at the time said there's no phase transition. But experiments said, look, there is a phase transition. You can see it in the data. Sitting there, obviously something's happening. We started thinking more about this problem as we decided that the theoretical description you could write down 
looked very reasonable, was probably right. The standard theory was not agreeing with observation at all. And so we looked at the existing theory and decided that some of it was right, because what the theory really said was in a system with continuous symmetry like, you know, for example, a thin film of superfluid helium, there is no long-range order. You know, this was a rigorous mathematical theorem. Then, of course, the, the face transition gurus, you know, Lev Landau and so on, had made the statement that the difference in the high temperature phase, the low temperature phase, is that the low temperature phase has long range order and the high temperature phase doesn't. In our system we're talking about, certainly the low temperature phase did not have any long range order, but it still had phase transition. Therefore, what is going on? I mean, we sort of sat there and thought about it a bit, you know, argued with each other and so on and so forth, and eventually came up with these ideas. In this problem, Dave and I were on the same level because neither of us knew anything about it. And eventually we decided on what to look at, what the essential things were, managed to do the calculations, and that was it. I enjoyed it, had fun doing it, eventually managed to get it published with some difficulty. Then I thought no more about it. Don't think we got a single citation for six or seven years, and then suddenly it caught on, and then the citations started exploding, and basically the rest is history. That's unbelievable. You publish this thing, which, by the way, if you're walking around looking for an interesting problem to solve, and then you say, "Hang on, the data implies very clearly there's a phase transition, but the common theory says that there isn't." On the one hand, great, that's your problem, but then having solved it and got this thing published. It's unbelievable that you then go six years without a citation. What happened sort of before the explosion? Did the interest in science at the time change? Or was this a hotter area than before? There was one experimental group that basically understood what we'd done and believed, well, half believed our results. And they were, you know, they did some experiments on it and basically verified our theory quantitatively. But even that wasn't quite enough. I think it was a lot of people couldn't quite grasp the idea that these gurus like Lev Landau and so on had made a mistake. When I was looking at it, I'd just come from high energy physics. And so I had no idea that what I was doing or trying to do was heretical and so on and so forth. I went ahead and did it. And, you know, just very lucky that I basically stumbled on this problem and was able to do it. And then all those years later, in 2016, a Nobel Prize appears. Yeah, right. It was an amazing piece of luck because I ended up doing a postdoc in Birmingham. I wanted to go to CERN in Geneva after my postdoc in Italy. I duly applied, but being my usual disorganized self, I was late. And so I got the reply saying, sorry, all the desk space is gone. Apply later. So at this point, I was staring down the throat of unemployment. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, she basically walked down to the Torino railway station, about a mile away, where one could buy English newspapers with job adverts. She came back, put the newspapers down in front of me, sat me down at the kitchen table, pointed at the adverts and said, apply. Under the circumstances, I did. <laughs> um, and... 
I was offered you know, a long-term postdoc at Birmingham University in Britain. Birmingham was the last place I wanted to go because Birmingham was a big industrial city in the flat middle of England without a mountain in sight. And you know, my main interest really was rock climbing, not so much the physics. The physics was fun, but rock climbing was my main interest, you know, because it was exciting and so on and so forth. It was a you know an amazing set of circumstances which led to this work and the prize. You know, incompetence on my part, applying late to things. If I had been organized and been on time, I would have got into CERN and led a completely different life. That's so serendipitous. If it hadn't been for your then-girlfriend's, now-wife, marching to get a newspaper, you thinking, oh, I sort of have to take this under the circumstances. Then at Birmingham, having to do the long calculations that you were bored by, which then sparked you into going around and saying, well, is there a more interesting problem for me to solve? I mean, life is kind of wonderful sometimes when you look back. When one looks back, it wasn't so wonderful at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Therein is the irony. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about Turin because you had just been at Cambridge and at Turin, you did a lot of climbing. And I just wonder if it was something of a culture shock and whether it was at Turin or in Turin rather, you discovered the climbing to quite the degree that you did. Uh, not really, because I, I started climbing when I was at undergraduate Cambridge. I discovered that I was actually quite good at it and I enjoyed it. At Cambridge, I spent every second I could rock climbing. I almost flunked my final exams because of this. I just want the listeners to kind of capture the degree to this, though, because, you know, there's a route called the, and I'm going to ask you to forgive my Italian accent, the Via Degli Inglese which while not at all capturing the fact that you're not from England, is the local name of a route. And the route has your name. It's the Kostelitz Isherwood route. To me, to have these two lives, you know, one of which ends in the Nobel Prize and some pretty cutting edge physics, and the other being one of the top British climbers, that's an unusual, and I say unusual with affection because it's wonderfully unusual, mixture of hobbies. Did you yes. find that something replaced the climbing uh, when you stopped climbing? in a way of sort of another hobby that verged on a real obsession and a real skill set? Not really, because the reason I quit climbing was because I, I developed this nasty neurological illness, you know, multiple sclerosis, which screwed up my balance and so on. I just couldn't climb anymore. I had a difficult time with that, you know, because it's worse than giving up cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Climbing was half my life, at least half my life. So suddenly having it being surgically removed, it was very hard to come to terms with that. That's incredibly difficult because the multiple sclerosis diagnosis is no fun, to say the least. And that's if you don't have half your life or at least half your life removed. Did that diagnosis come when you were still in Italy or did it come a little later on? It came when I was in Birmingham. One morning when I woke up, I felt a bit strange, got out of bed and fell on the floor and I couldn't stand. My balance had gone completely. Basically, I ended up lying in my bed for about six months. And for someone who had previously, just a couple of years previously, been climbing some fairly serious mountains. Right. It was a bit difficult to come to terms with this because the neurologist basically said to me, I can think of two possible things causing your symptoms, and one is a brain tumor, and the second one is multiple sclerosis. Took a long time to come to terms with this. I can imagine. And it's a strange thing in some ways to be told that the better of the two options as a climber is that you can't climb anymore and your active life is over. And that's the better of the two options. 
The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated, leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. I want to talk a little bit about your dad, about your father, Hans, because he, from what I can tell, lived an unbelievably interesting life. And he lends his name now to the Kostelitz Center at the University of Aberdeen. So I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about him. As a kid, I remember my father as a guy who was never home because he would leave the house at about eight in the morning and then come back at about six or seven in the evening. He would take me to his lab now and again, and I'd wander around, look at all these machines bubbling away and so on. He started life as a physiologist and then turned himself into a neuropharmacologist. I remember the most interesting incident when I was in a lab was walking around and coming across this waste paper basket in which was a dead cat with its uh, brain exposed. And I thought, I don't like this. I think that this is not something I would like to do later on. Yeah. (laughs) That put me off anything medical. That was the end of that potential career. Right. But but other than that, uh, he's quite an amazing man because his colleagues in Aberdeen at the time did not appreciate him at all. But then eventually he managed to get funding from, of all places, the States, And he started an institute in Aberdeen, which became quite famous because he'd already made this big discovery. He discovered these things, which he called the encephalates, these neurotransmitters. Because I remember him saying, we know that drugs like morphine and so on have a rather violent effect on humans, you know, in the brain. And he said, well, look, if morphine acts on the brain like it does Surely there must be some naturally occurring substance which acts similarly, because why else would morphine act like it does? Even as a young child, I liked this sort of reasoning, and eventually he did discover this naturally occurring substance in the brain, which he, which he called encephalins. So eventually this became very famous. He was constantly talking about the so-called opioids. One of his main ambitions was to try to modify the naturally occurring encephalins to become an effective painkiller. After tinkering around with it for a while, he said, now this doesn't work because everything, everything I do ends up with something that's incredibly addictive. And so he basically quit that work. But unfortunately, the name opioid has become a sort of rather dirty word. It has connotations of what he was worried about, which is addiction, right? Exactly what he was worried about did come to pass because the class of compound he was working on was an opioid, uh, which was incredibly unstable because once it was produced in the brain, it did its messaging or whatever it does, and it was immediately destroyed. So the addictive properties never became an issue. But then when people tinkered around with these chemicals, they made this very addictive drug. And hence the dirty words. 
Yeah, hence the opioid crisis. Does that all mean that science was something that was always around? Was science sort of a career that you, from the age of 10, were wide-eyed about? Or was it something that happened a little bit more naturally? Even when I was very young, I was always trying to understand how things worked. I was constantly taking things apart and destroying various things. The house, like clocks and so on. (laughs) Because once I'd taken something apart, I could never put it back together again. (laughs) And so I was always very curious about how things worked. Subjects like the humanities, languages, history, geography and stuff really bored the pants off me at, at school. There was no logic in these things. Whereas in mathematics and sciences, there was a logic, and I found that I could do it. Things like physics, mathematics, and so on exactly suits my way of thinking. My memory is absolutely horrific. I, I like to say that I can remember a maximum of 10 facts, but actually <laughs> I'm not too sure about the last four, so I, only, I can only be certain about six facts. And so therefore, I have to be able to deduce everything from those six If I can't do that, I can't remember it. Well, it's a very modest way of putting it, but you're right. These maths and physics, there's an internal consistency to them. If you understand the base principles, you can derive the further principles. And then I guess you can apply them to problems in the world, like a clock, (laughs) albeit one that isn't necessarily put back together. The reason I think it's sort of such a modest way of putting it is because while it's probably true that not having a great memory doesn't help with Spanish, for instance. It's not true that that lack of memory gives you the ability to deduce things in a way that a physicist might. Um, So, I mean, that's a skill that so clearly lends itself to those types of problems. But also, I imagine it's very intellectually satisfying going from the process of, well, I'm not sure how this thing works, but I have these basic principles. And from there, I can figure out something I didn't know with what I did. Is that in some ways kind of the appeal of that line of thinking? Yeah, I mean, that is its appeal. You know, just using some logic and so on, one can basically deduce a lot of stuff from there. And it is exactly suited the way I thought. Were you interested in doing maths, pure maths, academically? Yeah, I was. At Cambridge, I once made some inquiries into the possibility of changing from, from the natural sciences to doing pure maths. But the mathematicians at Cambridge discouraged me from that. And so I decided to stick with what I was doing, which was, it turned out to be a, a very good thing. <laughs> Why did they discourage you? What was their reasoning? I don't know. I mean, they probably thought that somebody who was doing physics and basically a bit of very non-rigorous applied mathematics was not suited for pure maths. And of course, actually, they were quite right because... You know, later on, I realized that pure maths just was a very irritating subject because one made a, a big deal about something that's totally obvious. <laughs> Which bit's totally obvious? Well, a lot of the pure maths that happens is proving the obvious. Right. Proving the obvious is not easy, but that's what a lot of pure maths seems to be all about. And if you're interested primarily in discovering the answers to new problems, developing tools to tackle things we haven't tackled before... Well, then, no matter how impressive, and it clearly is impressive, to be able to dance this pure mathematical dance, it doesn't help you solve those problems, and therefore it's not so interesting. No, it certainly doesn't help you, because let's face it, in physics, there isn't much in the way of some rigorous pure mathematics, because a lot of these physics problems are too difficult to prove rigorously, you know, describe rigorously. 
simply because often the questions one should ask in physics and other sciences are not defined. You have to come up with your own questions and then answer those questions. And so it's much more difficult than pure maths in that sense. Do you find that your work with physics lends itself to helping to answer philosophical questions? There is one ultimate authority in physics, and it's called experiment or observation. Any theory you construct, no matter how beautiful, has to eventually confront the ultimate authority. And if your theory disagrees with the ultimate authority, you're wrong. It's as simple as that. And therefore, you have to start again. The real pure and mathematical um, development of a theory is not worth it. It's too much effort. Does that mean that you hold off being particularly excited about something that's purely theoretical? You're sort of waiting until it meets this ultimate authority of experimentation. Or can you get yourself excited because when something does seem to account for all of the moving parts, it, that does tend to be borne out by experimentation. And the experimentation does tend to, on balance, match the elegance of a theory. Most theories, there's no smoking gun experiment to be done. The theory that Thales and I happen to develop there happened to be a smoking gun prediction buried in there, which eventually, with a postdoc at Harvard, Dave Nelson, we came up with this prediction based on the theory that Dave and I developed that a quantity that is in principle experimentally measurable has to come out to this particular number. And there's no escape from this prediction from our theory. If our right. theory was correct, if you made a measurement of this particular quantity, if it came out to be exactly this particular number, then the theory is probably right. If it came out to be different, the theory is wrong. The nature of the theory commits you to that number yes. being the decider. Yeah, there's no way out of it. And then when you eventually ran the experiment and the number, lo and behold, does come out, well, now in your mind, that's publishable because it's clearly correct. No, 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 no. We published this stuff long before that because the experiment was really done in the late 70s. I think it was published in 77, 78. And it just so happened to agree with our prediction, which, of course, was very gratifying. Well, I was going to say extremely gratifying, especially given that it was something of a theory that went against the orthodoxy. You know, as you say, the gurus on the matter hadn't necessarily taken into account that you would see a phase transition exactly here. Did you find then that the types of problems you were attracted to in physics were those where there could be a smoking gun experiment one way or the other to prove the theory correct or incorrect? Not really, because you can't really tell that there's going to be a smoking gun prediction coming out of your theory until you've actually done everything, because these smoking gun predictions are certainly not obvious. Right. So you sort of have to start by going in anyway. And if yeah. you're in particular luck, what ends up yeah. happening is you can come to right. a number. The particular quantity which you know, ended up the smoking gun prediction was the ratio in a thin helium film of the superfluid density per unit area just below the critical temperature divided by the critical temperature. This was some, some quantity that was expressible in terms of fundamental constants. And so it's an exactly known quantity. At least that was the prediction. The problem was the experiment was not easy. And the fact that the experiment wasn't easy is the reason why you didn't do it straight away. And it took a number of years until eventually that experiment was run. Now, the experiment was done pretty soon after 
David Nelson, I published a prediction because there was something which, if an experimentalist happened to be working on these superfluid helium films, that it was an obvious thing to try to measure. Basically, didn't require too many modifications to the existing apparatus to measure this quantity. You know, we were lucky in that the experiment agreed with the theory. So we were, of course, very, very, very pleased when that result came out because it basically confirmed the theory. And when that eventually, all these years later, led to the Nobel Prize, what was the process of actually winning a Nobel Prize like? I don't imagine they send you an email and say, hey, by the way, you're on the shortlist. Or maybe that is exactly how no, they no, did it. No, 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 no. As far as I was concerned... I remember when, after David and I did the work, David said, you know, this is actually surprisingly good stuff. It might become something that's very important and may even be worthy of some major prizes. But, of course, we've done the work in the mid-70s and we're now in 2016. And basically, there's a lot of papers written on using our work and applying it to different systems and results pretty much agreed with the predictions from the underlying theory. And so there was a lot of, you know, huge number of uh, citations in the literature. I can't remember how many, but it's a lot. And then, uh, you know, I remember I was happened to be on sabbatical in Finland in 2016, in October, and we we happened to be in an underground car park in a small city outside Helsinki, about to go up to the mall for a sushi lunch and beer. And my cell phone went off in my pocket after I managed to extract it from my jeans, which were a bit on the tight side. I answered it, and, and this voice with a strong Swedish accent came over, blah, 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 Nobel Prize. And I sort of was a bit, <laughs> bit startled by this, so I tried to think of something to say. It was about 30 seconds, and eventually the only thing I could think of saying was, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that was how I learned about it. The anonymous call from someone with a strong Swedish accent is probably a good sign when you've done well, some serious research. The thing was, it, it was the last thing on my mind. You know, I hadn't correlated, you know, the fact that in early October was the time when the prize was announced. And I thought it was not <laughs> yeah. in my mind at all. And so it came as a complete shock. How was the rest of your lunch? <laughs> Liquid. <laughs> Liquid, yeah. <laughs> I'd imagine so, yeah. And then right. you put down the phone and you say, okay, just a quick update for everyone. I mean, the only, you know, there was only, uh, it was with two other people and down in this car, dark car park, you know, in the underneath the mall. Yeah, so I just told them what had happened and you know, they were, you know, quite surprised. That um, must have felt a long way from being given this initial explanation where you were totally lost and didn't understand and had to interrupt to say, sorry, how did you get to that first formula? Fast forwards to the car park and the phone call and the Swedish accent. It's an awfully long time. Well, Dr. Kostelitz, thank you so much for that. Like, I'm so glad to have had you on. And that's an amazing story. I mean, from the sort of upbringing surrounded by science to the rock climb or the alpine climbing to the Nobel Prize, to everything in between. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time and sharing a little bit with us. You're very welcome. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to the Scientist Podcast. Um, again, that was Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Michael Kozolitz, and we are so lucky to have him on.
And as always, um, join us next week on the Scientist Podcast.